power, power, not pity, pity, pity. Power, 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 not pity, 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 pity. Power, 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 not pity, 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 pity. Power, 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 not pity, pity, pity. Hey everyone, welcome to Power Not Pity, a podcast for disabled people of color everywhere. I'm your host, Bri M. Those who have been following me from the beginning might note a change in the nature of this podcast. I decided to change my audience to cater to people of color. I didn't really see any media out there that offers a perspective like mine. I haven't ever seen a story about a black queer disabled person's life, so I decided to make one to highlight our lives. I believe our voices deserve to be centered. So this interview is with Rivers Solomon, a black disabled queer writer whose first book, An Unkindness of Ghosts, is making waves in the literary community. Tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yes, absolutely. So uh, my name is Rivers Solomon. Um, I'm a writer. I just had a book, um, An Unkindness of Ghosts, that came out on October 3rd, which is uh, science fiction. I'm originally from the United States. I kind of moved around a lot, but I'm mm-hmm. currently living in England. Get this. Rivers describes himself as a dyke, a Trekkie, a wannabe cyborg queen, a trash princess, a communist, a butch, a femme, a feminist, a she-beast, a root worker, a mother, a daughter, a diabetic, and a refugee of the transatlantic slave trade. I actually resonate with a lot of the ways that you identify. I'm, I also like uh-huh. identify as like a prince, and I really uh-huh. do feel like uh-huh. uh, my disabilities have made me more powerful than uh, when I was able-bodied. Absolutely. Yeah, no, um, gosh, especially in the last few years from it, for me, disability has become kind of one of the main lenses that I, I view the world through because of access stuff right now, and um, absolutely, and it's become such an important part of my writing mm-hmm. and how I see the world, and uh, it, I think it makes my writing better for it, and my writing mm-hmm. is everything to me, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been hearing a lot about your new book, and it looks pretty exciting like I would love to um, check it out and read it because you know also I'm a little bit of a of a nerd I used to work at this bookstore that had like a lot of radical feminist fair trade cafe it was like an activist center too and uh, they carried Akashic books yeah oh god I love Akashic so much because well, I mean first of all because they take a chance on my book but I love so much of what they do and that you know so much of their work is about sort of prioritizing marginalized voices. Obviously, I think that's what publishing needs, more more presses that are that are like that, and they've been so supportive. They've been so great to work with. That's amazing. So, okay, you have been compared to Octavia Butler, which is incredible, and even more of a reason why I want to read your book. Um, but I was wondering... <laughs> What inspires you to write? Uh, I've been writing for pretty much as long as I can remember. I was always the kid with the head in the clouds. I loved stories in every form that they come in. That was books, but that was also TV. 
movies, um, even like from like first and second grade, I would have these like elaborate kind of like fanfics in my mm-hmm. head that would blend sort of whatever media I was I was taking in at that time in my life. And I think I think stories, I mean, they bring our lives meaning, but they also like they entertain us, they save mm-hmm. us sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think like. I think actually, like, I mean, like Octavia Butler, like many sort of speculative fiction writers, you know, our world is fine and good, I guess. Um, <laughs> actually, it's not. It's not most days, not. But, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, why write about life in that world necessarily when I could imagine a new one? There's a lot of bad stuff that also exists in my created world. But, uh, you know, I have the power and, you know, things can resolve. There can be you know, resolution in 350 pages, which there cannot often be with our own struggles and life. And Wow. That was really beautiful. <laughs> uh, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking a little bow. I know you can't see me. but You are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, take a bow. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I would love to hear more about your writing process and, like, how you mm-hmm. envision disability in an Afrofuturistic sense? Oh, oh, that's a good question. So as far as process itself, for me lately, um, a lot of writing looks like not writing. So it's allowing myself to rest and breathe, and that's been really important. I got in this really sort of big guilt spiral shortly after I finished my first novel, because I wasn't producing, I wasn't producing and producing and making and making and making, and I felt so wrung out, and I felt so worthless, because uh, I wasn't mm-hmm. making as much as I wanted to make. You know, even though we think of art as this, you know, completely creative thing, like, it is labor, and, you know, it demands work yeah. from your body. Something that I've learned, and that's been really important to getting back into writing, is letting myself not write, and being okay with that, and that's been really important from a disability perspective, and letting my body heal. It's like sometimes my joints or the pain or stomach pain is too much to write through or the fatigue mm-hmm. is too much to write through. And even when you're not writing, you know, you're you're watching something that's setting it's a seed of an idea and learning to learning to see writing from writing is more something more holistic. It's not just the part where you're tapping the keys. It's, you know, going about your day, reading things and taking in new ideas. But I don't think it would be possible for me to do this if I had not, if I had not been taking the space for the past, you know, couple of months, months, honestly, years. Now, as far as disability and Afrofuturism, I haven't even thought about that. That's so interesting. I've actually been thinking about what does Afrofuturism mean lately. Mm-hmm. It's something that I identify with kind of on an instinctive level, but I probably find it a little difficult to actually talk about it. I have talked a lot about science fiction and disability. If I was going to define sci-fi, it would be kind of you're starting out a premise about the world with a question of what if, you know, what Mm -hmm. if things were slightly different than they were. And I think for many people who are disabled, we're sort of already often that what if um, Mm -hmm. because our, our lives are often different than what, than what, the norm for the people who are sort of enabled by society structures. So we're already on the edges. So we're already sort of the, the what if, the, the sort of the edge case. So I think 
our lives kind of have an inherently sci-fi aspect to them. And even mm-hmm. like there's that on a like a, on a literal level when you think about our assistive devices and various ways cutting edge technologies could help us. But it's mm-hmm. also just I think we're sort of really equipped to answer the question of what if or to think about it because we're already sort of living the what if lives. So that's really important to me when writing. It's really important with an unkindness of ghosts. And it's something I'm thinking about a lot, but I'm working on right now. I think something that's really cool about Afrofuturism that a lot of people don't really talk about is something that's really important about it is aesthetic, like mm-hmm. how things look, you know, sort of the sort of visual elements of it. And I think there's so many spaces you could go with that with disability um, and sort of the, finding the beauty and disabled people in our bodies and our lives that could draw on that. Could we talk about your disability specifically? I read yeah. your uh, yeah. New York Times article about uh, your experience, mm-hmm. but I really like felt what you had to say about like having this out-of-body experience that like chronic illness can mm-hmm. bring you. And um, mm-hmm. I really do have the same feelings as as if I'm a robot moving, you know, in the world, like being mm-hmm. oppressed by this medical industrial complex and not really knowing oh, how absolutely. to like, access what I need to survive. Yeah, I'm diabetic, sort of among other sort of sort of things. I think a lot of times, and why I was actually really happy to write that article. So I think for for many people. Uh, Diabetes isn't thought of as something that isn't always thought of as something that's particularly severe, unless it's at sort of the extremes, you know, when you or when you've gone mm-hmm. blind or when you mm-hmm. you know lost a limb to amputation. But it's kind of like this constant policing of your body that's yeah. so exhausting. It's just it wipes you out. And I think it, it was interesting. A lot of people emailed me and got in, in touch with me after that article. And it was mm-hmm. so heart- heartening. It was a lot of people with diabetes, but it was a lot of people that didn't have diabetes who had other illnesses or disabilities and, and talked about this aspect of, like, how you have to kind of manage yourself perfectly and mm-hmm. um, often to be, like, respected by doctors. Which is you know, you're not sort of perfect. But it is. It is. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and diabetes has had a really big effect on me, um, mostly in the mm-hmm. form of extremely disordered eating and fatigue, but also, you know, lots of pain. You know, right now I'm actually, I'm sort of, I'm seeing doctors about this sort of chronic joint and sort of limb pain and chest pain that I've been having. It could, it's very, it could very well be related to the diabetes. Lupus also runs in my family. So, you know, we're going to see about that and stuff, and mm-hmm. I don't know. So that's that's kind of the short of of disability stuff. Um, I I really like myself. I've come to, you know, some levels of peace um, about it, and I feel, just to sort of use your word power, I feel very empowered um, in, my, in my disability because, I guess because, it, I mean, it's such an intrinsic part of who I am at this point and mm-hmm. how I see the world and navigate the world. So, yeah. I feel the same way. I feel very empowered in my disability right now. And especially if I'm, you know, like trying to amplify the voices of my community with this podcast. Who we talk about 
blackness and disability because I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that, you know, like what is uh-huh. what is the the phenomenon of more cases of this, of diabetes than ever, you know? Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. I read this article that said that cases of diabetes are are being diagnosed uh younger and younger. Mhm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well I have I have so many different thoughts on that particular question. Um mm-hmm. or that is one is that on the one hand, a lot of it is because diagnostic criteria has changed. So that mm-hmm. like that that's often true when we think about the increased rates of like similarly with di- uh with um autism, spectrum disorders, ADHD and stuff like that is this changing and shifting diagnostic criteria. So for diabetes um, a lot of the numbers have been lowered. And then, of course, the, the, the category of pre-diabetes was also created to sort of identify with people, to, to identify people who have glucose processing issues before mm-hmm. they might sort of be at that level where they have uh, full-blown diabetes. So obviously, so there's, that's, one, that's one factor, but obviously there's so much else at play. Um, I do think, like, sort of even if you were to cut that up, that aside, that diabetes is is prevalent among Black people, and it has been. Um, and I think it's at this point where it's. I mean, I feel like it's kind of almost a big part in a lot of ways of different Black cultures. I was thinking about um, the movie Soul Food. Actually, have you seen mm-hmm. that? I have. I have. Yeah, and That's yeah, and it's a very popular. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very popular. Um, Black movie, and I mean, so much of it is about food, obviously, and black food mm-hmm. is, and mm-hmm. as, a, as a center of community and family, but also, you know, the sort of, the matriarch figure has diabetes and ends up passing away. So that that's something that I, that is an issue that is very, very close to to, to black people, I think. I mean, my grandmother was diabetic, um, mm-hmm. my dad is diabetic, gosh, I have a cousin who's also diabetic, she's, she's type 1 diabetic. And I think those, I think that type one and type two diabetes are more related than it often can seem like, and uh, but they are they're different. But I do think they have they can be related. Yeah, I mean I think when we think about issues of poverty um, and food access, so that that contributes. But also, I mean, I there is there is a hereditary aspect to to diabetes, and that's something as well. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a scientist. I haven't done that deep of research into it, but sort of all of these myriad things um, contribute to it. And but yeah, and it's not just diabetes. Also, I mean, there's a lot of sort of particular illnesses that affect the black community, like like the sickle cell, and specific sort of when we think about and many sort of young black athletes who've died from specific heart conditions and different things like that. So. We have to deal with sickness a lot, but we have to and we have to deal with it by often being underdiagnosed and mistreated from the medical industry. So, right, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Right. You know, as you're describing all of the different factors, I just want to know what your thoughts are on, uh, you know, thinking about this world that we currently live in and how it all relates to disability justice, disability rights, and access. I was wondering if, you know, you could tell us what you could imagine if a world was uh, slightly different, as you said, and what okay. kind of world would it be if if we had 
equal access and respect and mm-hmm. compassion from able-bodied people and understanding. Oh man, I mean, I think I think one thing that would make a huge difference in the lives of disabled and also not disabled people, able people, mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. be a change in how we see work, specifically mm-hmm. sort of work for money and sort of depending on wage labor for our survival. And I'm also sort of, you know, being queer and being black, and which are sort of, you know, among people who sort of spend their lives, and obviously this applies to disabled people too, being sort of economically precarious. And so what would it look like if if we had things? I mean, I, I would say, you know, I'm living in the U.K. now, uh, which mm-hmm. is far from perfect um, when it right. comes to this stuff. I would actually say, you know, surprisingly, there's actually a few things about health access that are even a little bit better in the U.S. But we do have, there's, you know, a nationalized health care here. It makes a difference. Like, I can already see the ways that it makes a difference in the things that people are able to do. Um, I, I, for the first time in my life, whenever I don't feel well or I feel like there might be something deeply wrong with me, I go mm-hmm. to the doctor and I don't have to worry about co-pays. It's just wild to me. It's wild. I just go and it's like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm going to the doctor all the time. I've had a surgery since being here that I never would have been able to have, I think, mm-hmm. um, because of my sort of specific insurance plans in the U.S. Um, so I was able to get fairly quickly here. So I can already see some of the ways that, you know, these things can make a material difference in our lives. But it's not perfect here either. I think I see I see that in the future we could have stronger and more resilient communities. I think mm-hmm. a lot of us are um, isolated from each other, and for you know for very practical reasons because of money issues, because of um, you know not having proper care you know care work where you know you can get out of house easily. And, you know, one way, for example, that England is much worse than the U.S. is the inaccessibility of buildings, specifically like wheelchair access. It's it's bad here. I have a friend who's suing an entire street because when she asked them to sort of add what was been a very cheap adjustment so that they, there could be step-free access to the shops, most refused. It, it's like it doesn't have to be that way. It's like a conscious choice that people make, right? Like, right, right. So, so much of the time, it's not even like a, a financial burden to make these really small changes to make to make a building uh, more friendly to people who are sort of navigating sort of different access issues. So, but yeah, so that so that means that community building. Um, I the apartment that I happen to live in, it's so frustrating to me, and this is the case with pretty much most buildings, except for new expensive ones in Cambridge, are like they do not have step-free access. It means that this, like, I have this reality is I can't have certain friends over, you know what I mean? And there's not even a lot of places, you know, that we can go. So I think that we would eventually be able to build sort of tighter, stronger communities and have that support, um, and that would nurture our creative side, you know, our ability to sort of live more fulfilling lives. And mm-hmm. I think that's a real possibility. I think we're far from it. I mean, I can also imagine a world where the future can be accessible. Uh-huh. It really can uh-huh. be. So earlier you were talking about how you're queer, and I uh-huh. I think queer people are magic. 
I think the disabled queer people are just like my my heart is there. Explain to you know in your own opinion how disability and queerness intersect. No, absolutely. So I think uh, for me, I just based on my history and having I, I, I've seen myself as a queer person for longer than I've seen myself um, as a disabled person. But I think it was actually the first time that I was exposed to sort of disabled theory, disabled people, as it was sort of coming up with stuff and sort of issues, um, was in the queer community. It was in New York City. I know I was 17 or 18. It was, and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just queer people. It was, it was queer black people. And, I mean, they were talking about these things, these things that mm-hmm. I had never heard talked about in high school. I, and part of it was just because it's like all these other things. Like there's, there's already a lot of intersections. You know, there, there, there are a lot of queer disabled people. Um, and I don't know why it can seem like that sometimes. Like when you're, when you're, once you're, you're marginalized in one way or sort of in the margins in one way, that it's like, all right, just give it all to me. But yeah, like I'm just thinking about my like my friends network um, here. It's like, do I know anybody who's not queer and disabled? And I, it's not even necessarily something that I've particularly sought out. It's just when it's when I think about the people who are doing the work, you know, who are um, doing the the trying to build something to try to change things. I think that's the people who it is. And I mean, probably that's because we're affected by it. So when you've grown up this way, we also I think you kind of develop you can you can develop quite deep compassion. You you see all the ways that this world is flawed, and you start thinking, okay, well then what what are we gonna do? We gotta yeah. we gotta do something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm really inspired by people who are committed to doing the work because I don't think uh-huh. it should be our uh, prerogative to educate able-bodied people. And there's all kinds of different sort of activisms, right, and um, mm-hmm. or different ways that you can sort of be an activist. And so many people, I'm realizing I can only, I only know by an online identity or mm-hmm. um, by a writing style that has appeared in several essays I've read or something like that. So I don't even have names to bring to mind, which actually now that I'm so glad actually that you asked that because I feel like that's something that I need to correct. Okay. Because actually, because someone was actually mentioning that how um, they're talking about this phenomenon of when something, someone does something amazing, who's marginalized, like often their like name is left out of the headline, and mm-hmm. like you just kind of have this like sort of romanticized person in your head um, who's done something. But you you don't actually you don't know their name. You can't follow their work or like support them. You know, donate to them or, and it's so true. And I'd feel like, oof, I just, yeah. So anyway, so I've known so many amazing people who've been in and out of my life. What I'd like to ask people lastly is, what is your disabled power? I'd just uh-huh. like to know, like, what is the thing that gives you the most agency and makes you feel, you know, like the most empowered in yourself as a disabled person? I think for me, and this is something that I kind of touched on earlier, but Mm -hmm. lately I've been, like, loving myself so much. I think I did spend a lot of time lost in self-hatred, thinking I'm never going to be able to do the things that I want to do. 
and this like sad body and it's just it's not true I have to do things differently I have to think about things but I have I've got a unique perspective mm-hmm. I've got mm-hmm. you know I forgive myself for when I'm imperfect or when I make mistakes and I look at myself and I say you're doing some pretty awesome things. Yeah, my disability has also given me things that I never thought I would have, you know, like a very um a more nuanced insight into what life is like, you know, just just mm-hmm. in general what people's lives are like, especially people who are on the margins of society, right? Absolutely. Could you tell us what you're currently doing? Like, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Cyborg Gyndroid with a shared G. I am, I'm writing, I'm writing my second book. I've got a a couple of essays forthcoming um, online, and I I always post stuff like that on Twitter. If you really want to kind of keep up to date, that's the best place to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, also, you know, yeah, check out my book, My Kindness of the Ghost. If you, you know, Google my name, River Solomon, um, other things that I've written will appear uh, for you to read online. So thank you so much for being so willing to be vulnerable with me and, you know, tell tell your story in a really unique way. You know, our lives are, are complicated and Multiplicitous, and just because we move through the world in a different way doesn't mean that you know we we are without for you know seeking me out and asking me these questions. If you know me, you know that I consider myself an alien through and through. I'm not from here, and because of that, my disability, aka my otherness, makes me feel stronger and more sure of myself. I'm able to adapt, adjust and curve around the obstacles that come my way. There's pain, there's struggle, but there's beauty too. All of the stories I plan to share are special in their own way. I just hope you find them special too. Want to find out about the latest episodes of Power Not Pity? Check out my website at powernotpity.com. I'm also on Facebook at the same handle. I've been retweeting angry and frustrated posts from disabled activists on Twitter for a hot minute. So you can find me at Twitter slash PowerNotPity. You can also send me some love at PowerNotPity at gmail.com. Power, 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 not pity, pity, pity. Power, 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 not power, pity, power, pity, power, pity, not pity, pity, power, pity. Power, 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 not power, pity, power, pity, power, pity, power, pity, power, pity, power, 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 not pity, pity, pity.